Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This morning we're going to continue in the series from Psalms, and we'll be looking at Psalm 37. As we begin, I want to tell you that I've noticed something about my prayers and the things that go on in my life. Um, I've noticed that my prayers before God have regular and repetitious themes. And sometimes I feel bad about this because I think as you get older, shouldn't you be going on to new things? Shouldn't your prayers be different? You know, been there, done that, took care of all that stuff, now I should have different prayers. New levels. Well, some things do change. But some things just never seem to change, and they keep coming back as I go to God with this situation, or this concern, or this sin, or this reality, or this need to trust. And recently, I was, I was reading through the book of Psalms, uh, it just in the regular progressive reading, I realized something. I realized that the Psalms, the prayers and songs of God's people, have regular and repetitive themes. And suddenly, I felt better. Because I realize that God knows that I am made of dust. I'm dirt. He knows that we are made of dust, and He knows that the realities of our struggle in this world against sin and the difficulties we face are common to us, and they just keep coming. There's a day when they'll stop coming, and that's when we go back to dust. But not until that day. So it's not like you get to Psalm 150 and you're ready for the leap off into glorification, right? Because 150 is like the, you know, the last uh, piano lesson. And now you've got the whole thing mastered. No, no, that's not how it works. You get to 150 and then you just push, you know, well, I'm dating myself. You push the carriage on the typewriter back and you're back at Psalm 1. Don't walk in the council, don't stand, don't sit, right? You're back. And so you realize that the themes repeat and repeat and repeat. And it's because we need them to. We need them to. And this morning, God gave us, along with these Psalms, Psalm 37, and it's a good example of this. It's not a prayer to God, it's rather about Him and His relationship to man and includes a lot of imperatives to us so that we will listen to Him to escape something that He's concerned we'll be trapped by. So the psalm is about two categories of men, evildoers, wrongdoers, transgressors, the wicked, and the humble, the righteous, the godly, the blameless, right? And it's contrasting these back and forth. In many spots, it actually almost sounds like a proverb as you read it, as it contrasts the righteous and the wicked. I'm not going to start by reading the whole psalm. It's 40 verses long. 
I am going to read the psalm through as we do the sermon. Okay? So let's begin with prayer. Father, we pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable to you who are our Lord and our strength and our Redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse, 30, or verse 1 of Psalm 37 starts, A psalm of David, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Do not fret. Be not envious. When we read the word fret, we automatically think of what? What's the synonym for fret you think of? Worry. Everybody thinks of worry. Worry is where our minds hover over these concerns that we have. We worry about our children. We worry about our money. We worry about our job. We worry about our health. And we just kind of hover over things and we, we think about that as fretting, right? We tell people, oh, you shouldn't fret. And it's true. We really shouldn't worry. But in the psalm, that word fret here does not, in this psalm, does not mean worry. It's a, it's a much more aggressive Hebrew word for what they've translated as fret. Our understanding is more like vexation, frustration, right? And there is a place for vexation with the world around us. But here the word translated as fret is actually more about burning with anger. It's not, it's not like we usually see somebody angry and say, stop fretting. But that's what this word is actually meaning. It's actually burning with anger. And it's saying, do not burn with anger. It's an imperative. Do not burn with anger about the wicked. Don't burn with anger about them. Well, why would you burn with anger? Well, you'd burn with anger in the context because the Lord is warning us against having jealousy and envy toward them. Jealousy and envy toward evildoers. We're not envious of all evildoers. Some, some people who live in sickness and poverty do so as a result of destructive behavior, behavior drug and alcohol abuse or sexual perversion. You know, we're, we're not usually driving down the street and seeing somebody laying on the road with a bunch of uh, single-use bags full of stuff laying beside them on the sidewalk and thinking, I envy that person. If I could just be them. Right? And it could be that they're there because they've done something incredibly wicked or they have a repetitive sin that's caused them to be there because of that reason. But that's not who it's talking about. We don't, we don't envy the crystal meth addict. It's talking about people who are wicked, who are glamorized to us. The temptation to evil that comes from the envy of people who are wicked, who are seen by us as glamorous. We look at them because they're in front of us. They might be locally in front of us. They might be exotic. They might be far away. But we look at them and they have well-regulated perversions that are masked behind success-projecting persona. They look successful. They look good. But there's a lot of wickedness there. And those are the people the Scripture is saying to us, Don't envy, don't fret. 
Don't get angry. Why would we get angry about them? Well, we get angry because we start to think, look at him, he's wicked, and he gets all that, and he's all this, and she's all that, and she's all this, and and I'm working, and I'm trying to be righteous, I'm trying to be obedient to the Lord, and I'm trying to fight against my own heart, my own desires to sin, and I'm trying to suppress and to kill and to stop that, and they're like this, and they just live like they want to live, and look how good their life is, and you see pretty soon, you start to envy, pretty soon you start to get angry. Why is it that they're this way, and why am I that way? And the Lord knows that this is going to happen with us. So he gives us a warning. Don't fret. Theologian Matthew Henry says, we're apt to envy them the liberty they take in getting wealth, and perhaps by unlawful means, and in the indulgence of their lusts, and to wish that we could shake off restraints of conscience and do so too. We're tempted to think them the only happy people and to incline to imitate them and to join ourselves with them that we may share in their gains and eat of their dainties. Dainties. Right? And this is what we're warned against. Fret not thyself, neither be thou envious. Fretfulness and envy are sins that are their own punishments. They are the uneasiness of the spirit and the rottenness of the bones. It is therefore in kindness to ourselves that we're warned against them. Don't envy wrongdoers. They will quickly wither like grass and fade like the green herb. Matthew Henry says their ruin is at the door and they are ripening apace for it. They are ripening apace for it. How many of you know who Reverend John Gano was? Reverend John Gano, G-A-N-O. The same number as in the first service. <laughs> we're batting a hundred or we're a thousand or whatever the number is. Well, it's kind of strange how I came to find this out in my preparation, but John Gano was a descendant of French Huguenots. His ancestors came here to escape persecution. Literally, one of his ancestors was told in the night that he was the next guy that was going to be killed in the persecution. And so he took his family and they got on a ship and they got to America. And so one of his descendants, John Gano, was a contemporary of George Washington during the time of the Revolution. And he's famous for, he, is, he was a Calvinistic Baptist pastor. And he is famous for being the man that George Washington asked to pray the prayer officially ending the Revolutionary War. So there was a concluding ceremony of some sort, and John Gano prayed that prayer at the request of General Washington. He was also a trustee for the chartering of the English colony of Rhode Island and Providence plantations. Does anybody know who that, what that was? Well, it's now Brown University. It doesn't sound like a university name at all, does it? But then it was a Baptist university where they taught theological training. 
he had a lot of famous descendants. And one of them was a Union general during the Civil War. And you might say, okay, he was on the good side, but he was, you know, his, his nickname was the Butcher of Kentucky. So not really a good, uh, a good story. Another one was a Confederate general. And he's the one that I'm interested in in the storyline for you because that Confederate general who became a pastor later on, he had a great-grandson and his great-grandson's name was Howard Hughes. Now, how many of you know who Howard Hughes was? Okay, raise your hands higher. Everybody that's younger, look around, because nobody younger, raise your hand, okay? Okay, you put your hands down. I got to help the younger generation. Howard Hughes was a billionaire. He was um, Elon Musk in another day. Okay, he was a billionaire, playboy, owned airline, owned uh, part of Las Vegas, uh, owned, I think, a, a film studio, directed movies, uh, had a company that made airplanes. He was an inventor, but he was also a playboy. If you know who Katherine Hepburn was, he dated her. But if you see the list of everyone else he dated, he dated every other woman that was a famous movie star at that time. And so that was Howard Hughes. If that still doesn't help the younger generation, how many of you younger than 25 know who Stan Lee was? Okay, how many of you younger than 25 know who Iron Man is? liars, you know who he is. <laughs> Stan Lee was the creator of the comic series that included Iron Man. Iron Man's character was a man named Tony Stark. Tony Stark's persona was developed by Stan Lee thinking of what Howard Hughes would be like in that persona. So Tony Stark was built after the persona of Howard Hughes. And they named his father Howard, right? Tony Stark's father. That's all free. <laughs> but it is a way to get somewhere, and that's what we're going toward. So Howard Hughes was the glamorized wicked. He was the glamorized wicked. And as his life developed and as he indulged himself and, didn't, and it had nothing to keep him, everyone looked at him and they would have been tempted to envy him, his life. Wealthy playboy, go anywhere, do anything he wanted. But he ended up so uh, inward and frightened and obsessed that he ended up alone in a hotel room for years. And people came in and served him. Interestingly, Mormons helped him. And he had a group of Mormons that were his uh, captains, and they were known as the Mormon Mafia. Okay. Howard Hughes, alone, rotting in a hotel room. 
they said the curtains literally disintegrated off of the rings. Billionaire, alone, frightened. And he was, at one time, the glamorized wicked. Many men wanted to be Howard Hughes. Many Christians of his day were probably tempted to envy Howard Hughes. But he quickly faded like grass. An entire generation watched as, using Matthew Henry's words, he ripened to ruin. And then he was gone. Have you ever wondered of the people around you who is ripening to ruin? That's not how you think of them, is it? That's not how you think of the glamorized wicked. You don't think of them as people ripening to ruin. Because in our hearts, we have a temptation to envy them. We have a temptation to say, why are they doing so well? <clears throat> why is it that they're doing so well when this, it's so difficult for me? And God says, no, 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 no. You don't want to envy them. First Peter says, you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed that is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. But the grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. You've been born again of imperishable seed. There isn't a ripening to ruin for God's people. It is an imperishable seed enduring forever through the word of God. Not like the grass that fades away. And we are supposed to grow up in respect to our salvation. And that growing up involves seeing the reality that we are of imperishable seed and not allowing ourselves to be tempted to envy everything that's perishable. It's going. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. First, again, an imperative, trust in the Lord. Be confident to act because you belong to the Lord. From the time I was a small child, my father gave me responsibilities. And the responsibilities changed as I grew. So early on, I had the responsibility of carrying a bucket of water. And later I had a responsibility of caring for a lot of big animals. And later I would drive the three-speed pickup truck to the elevator to get grain for the animals, right? All of this time I was doing so acting as a man who lived in the extension of his father's domain. I lived in my father's domain. I lived in the safety of his authority. One day he came 
to a, a church in Cincinnati, and he watched as I took Annie to be my bride and as I established my own household. He saw as I established my own domain. And it was a joy to have him there to do that. Now, my father's been gone 16 years. He's been gone to God 16 years. And I want to tell you something. I still feel the safety of his authority. Now, how can that be? Well, if you're a man and you had a halfway decent father, you'd know what I'm talking about. Or if you're a woman and you had a halfway decent father, you'd know what I'm talking about. The fact that I live in the, in the uh, echo, <laughs> as it were, of my father's authority. But my father, though he was a sinful man, and he believed on Christ, confessed Christ, though he was a sinful man, my father taught me, he schooled me in trusting God, the heavenly father. He prepared me for that work. And here we are today, a room full of men and women, fathers and mothers, but fathers of the church, men and fathers of the church. Are we creating an environment where we're schooling those under our authority to understand and know the Heavenly Father? Does anyone feel the safety of your particular authority, of your particular realm? Trust in the Lord. Do good. We're confident to act because we trust the Lord. Our actions should reflect His character. We should do good. We should dwell in the land. But what land is that? Should we all pack up and move to Israel? Is that what it's saying? Dwell in the land? No. We should dwell in the land where we are. As believers, as citizens, as children of God dwelling where we are and do our uh, resistance against the temptations that he's warning us about wherever we are. Grow where you're planted. Here you are. You're in Bloomington. Grow here. Cultivate. Literally, keep company with faithfulness. Keep company with faithfulness. Galatians 6 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Cultivate. Keep company with faithfulness. So, to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Who do you keep company with? Who do you keep company with? Lately, I've been seeing these uh, clusters of uh, teenagers. And so, I go up there and I kind of stand in the circle. And they don't know that I'm not a teenager. <laughs> and I kind of sneak up in there and and so I, I talk to them a little bit, and lately I've, wa I've been wanting to tell them, ask them, um, 
not who they keep company with, but yes. I say to them, uh, who are your friends? And do your friends provoke you to be godly or do they provoke you to be worldly? So then I say to them, why don't you write out a list of all your friends? And why don't you, next to their name, say, put a, a G for this one provokes me to be godly, or a W, that one provokes me to be worldly, and go down the list. Now what I don't tell them is, if I saw their list, I could probably put the letter that they would want to put next to the name, right? And then I'm telling them, are you provoking your friends to be godly or to be worldly? So if your friends made a list, what would be the letter next to your name on the list? Cultivate, keep company with faithfulness. It doesn't just work for teenagers, you older people. Make your list out and write down on that list who provokes you to be godly and who provokes you to be worldly. And then consider to yourself, what if you saw your name on somebody else's list, what letter would be next to your name? And you say, well, no, I don't provoke anybody to anything. Well, then you're provoking them to be worldly. Okay? There is no middle ground. There's no neutral territory. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Our lives in Christ must be attended by vigilance. We have to be vigilant. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This word delight means to luxuriate. To luxuriate. Um, for years, Annie and I had a memory foam mattress. And it, it was wonderful. You'd lay in it and you'd just luxuriate in the mattress until it developed amnesia. Then we had to get another one, okay? So we still have a memory foam mattress. It's just a different one. I don't know how else to tell you to, to, uh, uh, to luxuriate in God, but that you lay back in God and rest in Him. You know, Tim has been rightfully teaching us about the, the evil of effeminacy in men. And the word uh, malakoi, to be soft. But I want to tell you that this word for delight is actually about soft. So there's one place where we can embrace soft, and that is when we lay back and luxuriate in the care of our Heavenly Father. Our memory foam mattress will only give us maybe a good night's sleep of comfort, but God keeps us in every way sustaining us even to life, but certainly to salvation. And so we lay back in Him and rest, and He cares for us. Delight yourself in God. Those who desire the fruits of sin, those who are tempted to glamorized wickedness, are not able to luxuriate in God. They can't rest in Him. They're not, their minds aren't set to rest in Him. We're not to love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is passing away and also its lusts. 
but the one who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2. We can trust in God. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the new day. Commit your way, it means dedicate your journey. Dedicate your journey, trust in him, and he will do it. Dedicate your journey to the Lord. Now, uh, many of you know Andy and Grace Halsey. They've moved here from Mississippi, and they're looking to plant a church in Columbus, Indiana, east of us. They came here with a plan to plant a church, but they did so not presumptively. They did so praying. They did so saying, I want to commit my way to the Lord. I want to dedicate this journey to God. And it is what we're supposed to do. They were trusting that God would accomplish His will through them. They still are. They still pray. Keep us from presumption. We want to dedicate this to you. This journey is yours, right? And so this is what we're all supposed to do. But you say, well, I, you know, I'm not moving somewhere to plant a church. What do I got to dedicate to the Lord? Right? I'm, uh, I got to finish high school yet. I don't have my master's degree done. I'm looking at this promotion at work that I need to get. Once maybe I get that, I can think about something to dedicate to the Lord. I want to get married. I'm just planning my retirement now. I'm just getting things ready. I don't, I don't have anything to dedicate. Maybe when I have a legitimate journey, one that you know, really counts, worth dedicating, I'll dedicate it to the Lord. James 4 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know that you're, what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live also and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows, who knows, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. What is the right thing to do? It tells us, doesn't it? The right thing to do is to say, if the Lord wills. The right thing to do is to commit your way to dedicate your journey to the Lord. The right thing to do is to say, if the Lord wills, I'll graduate from high school. And I will do that graduation to His glory. If the Lord wills, I'll finish my master's program. And it belongs to Him. If the Lord wills, I'll get a promotion at work and I'll serve him with that promotion. If the Lord wills, I'll get married, and my home will be established to his glory. If the Lord wills, I'll retire. And when I retire, I won't retire from serving the Lord, but I will serve him, and I will bring glory to him in my retirement. That is the right thing. And when do you do it? When do you do it? It says in James 4, Today or tomorrow. Today or tomorrow when you're thinking these things. Whatever these things are, right now is the time. 
you dedicate your journey to God. And this protects you from envying the wicked. It inoculates you against it. Verse 7, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Rest. Be silent still. Wait patiently. Jesus says, come to you. Come all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Do not fret. Again, he's repeating and he will one more time repeating. Do not fret. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. Verse 8. That's the third time. Do not fret. But he says, cease from anger. Literally, do you know what the literal idiom for cease from anger is? The Hebrew? It literally means um, uh, relax your nose. Because the Hebrew language is like that. And so when you get angry, what happens? Your nose flares. Right? Everybody can tell you're angry. And it's because your nose flares, your face, your face, you know, your face gives it away. And so relax your nose, cease from anger. If you've been angry about the, the wicked, if you've been angry about the glamorized wicked, relax your nose. Cease from anger. Stop it. Be done with it. Somebody who was patient was said to have a long nose. Because it took them a long time to flare up their nose. Okay? To get angry. Seek from, cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Abandon burning anger. And again, do not fret. Do not fret. In Romans 12, we're told not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. You can be overcome by evil. You can be conquered by evil. And that should be sobering to you. I have seen people conquered by bitterness. They have been overcome by bitterness. They're lost in a labyrinth of it. Not able to find their way out. They don't even see that they're lost. Do not be overcome by evil. Cease fretting. The center section of the psalm doesn't have any imperatives, and for the sake of time, I'm not prepared, prepared really to comment on anything but the imperatives. So I'm going to read through the center section. It talks about the actions and the future of the wicked and the actions and the future of the righteous. Listen as I read till we get toward the end where he has some more imperatives. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him. For he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken. 
but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. You've seen this in the spring as all the flowers come up in the pastures, and all the, the, the uh, uh, clover uh, flowers and all the wild daisies and all these things come up. You know, if it's my yard, it's dandelions. You see all the stuff come up and then all of a sudden it's gone. Vanished like smoke. The wicked bur- borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. And I love this, right? Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. God wouldn't let us fall. Verse 25, I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing. We have a few more imperatives at the end. Verse 27, depart from evil and do good so that you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice, does not forsake his godly ones They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. We're supposed to depart from evil and do good. Literally, Turn evil off. Works good for the TV, doesn't it? Works good for the computer. Works good for the uh, radio. Works good for the iPad. I, what, are, what do we have now? The i-whatever that's full of music. That's crap. Works good for those, doesn't it? Turn it off. Turn off evil. Depart from evil and do good. Ephesians says that we're to put on a new self, which is in the likeness, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Now, I talked about Howard Hughes, but he's been dead a long time. And certainly the wicked man that the psalmist saw in his day has been dead a long time. But who do you know today that is is the personified wicked made to look glorious to you. Like a luxuriant tree spreading out all over the place. His name is everywhere, that guy, that lady. 
Wait for the Lord and keep His way. Wait for the Lord because there will be a final judgment of the wicked and we're to wait for Him. First Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Wait for the proper time. And what we always think is, right now. Now is the proper time. And no, the keeper of the proper time is God. Wait for the Lord for the proper time. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 37, Mark the blameless man and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. Now this is one of the most difficult ones. Every one of these imperatives, if you go back and you read them, go home, take out your Bible, look at Psalm 37, look at all the imperatives, the commands that come through. Here's the one. Every one of them is going to, if you're honest, every one of them is going to feel like somebody stuck a pin in you, right? Because it's telling you to do something that you don't want to do. You don't want to wait. You don't want to turn. You don't want to uh, not associate. You don't want to do all those things because you have a heart in you that's warring, a flesh that's warring against you, right? Every one of them is going to provoke you, but it isn't necessarily going to be a sweet kind of provoking. It's going to be like, ugh. And this is one of the worst ones, I think, right? Because basically, we started off the psalm by saying, don't envy the wicked. Don't envy the glamorized wicked. And then it comes to verse 37, almost the very end, and it says, mark the blameless man and behold the upright. And so you turn your eyes away from the glamorized wicked and you look at the, <coughs> excuse me, you look at the blameless man and the upright. And at that point, we think what? Oh yeah, that's what I like to uh, do. I like to observe people who behave better than I do. Everybody who behaves better than you do, everybody who is more upright than you are, is a what? They're a goody-two-shoes, aren't they? Well, maybe they're a, 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 a legalist. Everybody who behaves more uprightly than we do, generally we're not looking at them and saying, oh, if I could only be that. If I could only be Stephen. I want to be Stephen. But if they're more upright than we are, we're thinking, ah, goody two-shoes. Oh, it's just me? You liars. Don't leave me hanging here like this. By the way, goody two-shoes, you ever hear the phrase goody two-shoes? Okay, okay. Guess what? Goody two-shoes, we think of it in a negative way. What we think of is that this is a moralist who's like, like the watching over everybody. That's who we think the Goody Two-Shoes is. Now, Goody Two-Shoes was a children's story written 260 years ago about a girl named Marjorie Meanwell. 
to teach children that virtue is rewarded. It's like a little children's story about Psalm 37 is what it is. And the story is pretty simple and sweet. Little Marjorie, meanwhile, only has one shoe, but she behaves very well. And so a man sees this and he decides to give her another shoe. And so now Marjorie, because of her good and pious behavior, has two shoes. And so she is goody two shoes, right? And it gets better because she marries some rich guy later, okay? <laughs> She's not a moralist who insists on pointing out everyone's shortcomings and then reporting them to the proper authorities. She is a person who is blameless and upright. And at that time, they wanted children to know such things. And God wants us to know such things. And so he says, look to the goody two-shoes. Look to the blameless man. Look to the upright and let him be your model. And don't find yourself trapped in envy of the glamorized wicked. Often we don't want to celebrate the godly behavior in others just because we're not that interested in being reminded of the ungodly behavior in ourselves. Right? But the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, zealous to do good. Now, as I said, we all get these pins sticking in us as we read these imperatives. Uh, oh, it's not me. Falling short there, falling short here. And then we realize as it comes to the, the last two verses of the chapter, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. We may be overwhelmed like the disciples were when Jesus saw the rich young man walking away. The rich young man is walking away. And the disciples, remember this guy, if, if there was somebody who might be understood to be glamorized in their time, this guy was rich, and, and he, was, he, was, he was apparently on the surface very good. But under the surface, there was something very bad, and Jesus exposed it. And so this man walked away, and Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, when they heard that, what did they say? Who can be saved? Who could possibly be saved? I have to tell you, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. And as Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We get to the end and we go, oh, all those things. And then he says, 
the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. We need to take refuge in God. The disciples learned to take refuge in God so that they knew the God who was able to save because they knew they couldn't save themselves. And this morning we have the privilege of remembering Jesus Christ doing the work of saving us with his own body and blood on the cross. And as we do so, we remember that it's, you know, this is kind of how we should approach communion every time we take communion. As we're standing here and the pastor comes down to the table, we should just be saying to ourselves, who then can be saved? And then we should hear Jesus' words. It's impossible for you. But with God, oh, it's possible. You can be saved. So we have to remember that. Elders, would you come this morning, please? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that you are powerful, that you have made us able to see that we have uh, an imperishable seed in us that's been set there by your hand through the Holy Spirit, that we don't have to be worried about withering and fading and being gone, that while our earthly bodies will certainly do so, our souls will go to you, and Lord, that you will raise us with an imperishable body on the day. And Father, this is because Jesus came and he paid the price for our sins and he reconciled us to yourself. And here, Lord, we are before you and before this table asking that you will cause us to see and remember Christ in this bread and in this wine, that we will look in faith to him. Lord, who can be saved? We can be saved because you have power and that you have caused salvation to come to men. So help us now, Lord, to receive this by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.